after over 9,000 years, the many generations of humans that inhabited the territory we call today Mexico had fallen victims of the self-inflicted pain and pleasure that comes from eating chilies. In Mexico, chilies just seem to be everywhere in some shape or form. Chilies have a way to sneak into every aspect of our gastronomy. And we can find them raw, cooked, in salsas and dishes, toasted, fried, grilled, ground, pickled, and even in children's candies, drinks, and sprinkled on fruit. It is no exaggeration to say that in Mexico, chiles are equally loved, feared, and respected. And for many, it is even a sign of bravery to eat many strong chiles when the occasion presents itself. But when and how did this passion for chiles take shape? And how on earth did Mexicans came up with so many ways to prepare chiles? Well, don't move from where you are, because these and many other burning questions will be answered today. You are listening to episode 51 of Positipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast and my work, please go to PazDeChipotle.com. You can subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the show using your favorite podcast app. Hola, my friends! I've been so looking forward to getting behind the microphone again, and I hope you missed me as much as I have missed you. This little but well-deserved hiatus has served its purpose to fill my diary with a programming for the show for the first quarter of 2020, with topics that include many of your kind suggestions and requests, as well as many delicious surprises. So, starting the decade with the bright food, I decided to make a full stop and go back to the origins of Mexican food and the ingredients, methods, and processes that build Mexico's food knowledge and traditions. I will finish, of course, the last of the culinary regions with the remaining states of the Northwest, but I have also prepared a growing lineup of guests that will grace the microphones of Pase Chipotle in this fourth season of the show. And so we begin today with one of the pillars of Mexican food. Today's episode is entirely dedicated to celebrate chiles. I hope you enjoy this episode. First things first, let's start with some introductions, as our very distinguished guest is the mighty Chile. So let's find out more about its name and the history behind it. 
The undoubted cultural and gastronomical importance of chiles is, well, almost self-evident, as its culinary use is deeply ingrained in the food traditions of Mexico. The word chile in Spanish and chile in English are actually both derived from the Nahuatl word chile or chili. Some countries around the world call this fruit, because it is a fruit, ají, which is a word from the Taino language, which is spoken by the indigenous tribes that have historically inhabited the Antilles. Further south, the indigenous people from Peru have names such as Uchu and Andasak Uchu to refer to different types of chiles. And there are even other words for chiles like guindilla, which derives from the Spanish word guinda, that refers to the crimson color of some chiles. So as you can see, there is not a unique way to call chiles, well, chiles. Among Christopher Columbus's documents, he kept a diary where he scrupulously recorded his findings. And when coming across chiles and realizing the culinary importance of this ingredient among the tribes he interacted with, he was quick to note that chiles were as essential to the regional cuisines as pepper was to Europe's own. And so we find that in the English language, sometimes Chiles are called peppers, and some food historians suggest that because Europeans, specifically Spaniards, were way more familiar with Asian peppercorns and the pungency of the flavor, and hence they saw chiles as a type of pepper. But they are completely different plants and are totally unrelated. To ponder about these initial comparisons between ingredients reveals a little more about the way in which Europeans had to figure out the name of ingredients that were new to them. And sometimes they use almost in the same way the original indigenous words, but some of the times they came up with their own and with those new names they incorporated many of these products from the new world into their culture and pantries. In Mexico, nobody refers to chiles or their flavor as being hot, as that would only refer to the temperature of a dish that contains chiles and won't really describe the strength of the flavor. So the word we use in Mexico to refer to the strength of a chile is pica, which means to each. So the English word that is a very good equivalent is picant, which means that a chile can be picant or not. Throughout the Aztec Empire, the many varieties of chiles were classified by their intensity, from the mildly piquant to the very strong. And there were three main categories, called cococ for mild, cocopatic for strong, and cocopalatic for basically roll on the floor and whip like a baby. Enough of that linguistic conundrum, and let's just say that calling a chili a pepper is just perpetrating a very archaic cultural interpretation of an ingredient. So probably will be more accurate just calling them ají, chile, or chile. So now that you know a little bit about the origins of the word chile and the many other words that exist to call this fruit, let's talk a little bit 
about the botanical history of this crop. Now, chiles are one of the five staple crops that became pillars of the indigenous diet in ancient Mexico. The other four crops are beans, corn, tomatoes and squashes. Archaeological finds place its earliest domestication to have taken place around 8,000 years ago. Mexican archaeobotanists have also found that it was hunter-gatherers who helped disseminating seeds of different varieties of chiles across the territory. Because one of the lesser-known qualities of chiles is that helps preserving foods, that means prevents them from rotting, and specifically I'm talking about meats, which was quite a small weight of ensuring food supplies for nomadic tribes. While I'm sure, or I hope, that there are still some varieties waiting to be discovered, to this day, in Mexico, we have 64 different varieties of chiles that have been fully classified. Now, let me get a little bit technical to explain some interesting things. It so happens that this botanical genome of capsicum, where all chiles belong to, are part of the family of the Solones, and these are native to the Americas, and only has 31 family members. Of these 31 varieties, only 5 of them were domesticated, and from those 5, we got all those 64 identified varieties that to this day we cultivate in Mexico. I said earlier that chiles are in fact a fruit, and specifically a berry. They require very specific conditions to grow and thrive. One of them is that they need an average temperature of 29 Celsius degrees and can only tolerate low temperatures that go just to 12 Celsius degrees and no less, which is about 54 Fahrenheit degrees. So they actually need some good, stable, warm weather. The anatomy of chiles, regardless of the variety, consists of a round or elongated shape of the fruit, which is formed by a thick and juicy skin. Chiles have well, almost virtually no pulp, and inside lays a bulb which is connected to the stem, and attached to this bulb we can find many rows of flat, round seeds. In the interior part of the skin or epidermis of chiles, we can normally find a visible network of septa or veins, as we call them in Mexico, and they divide the chambers of the fruit. And it's usually there, in those veins, where the largest concentration of capsaicin is located, and that is what gives them the distinctive flavor. It's totally unrelated to the size color or shape of the chiles, meaning they can be very, very piquant regardless of their little size, or they can be very, very sweet in spite of being big. A fun botanical fact is that this large family of the Solanes has many world-loved crops, including not only chiles, of course, but also very delicious cousins like tomatoes, potatoes, aubergines, and even tobacco. The culinary uses of chiles has really disseminated pretty much all around the world, and almost every cuisine uses chiles in one way or another. But chiles are also an incredible source of nutrients, not only of flavor, and they are incredibly rich in vitamin A, C, potassium, magnesium, 
and beta-carotene, which is also contained in carrots. And chiles are also a great source of antioxidants, and they prevent the formation of blood clots. Now, going back a little bit to the evolution of chiles as a domesticated crop, let me tell you that the oldest physical evidence of chili crops have been found specifically in the valley of Tehuacan, which is located in the southeast of the state of Puebla in central Mexico. But of course, many other regions followed in the domestication of their own varieties. And many centuries later, at the height of the pre-Columbian trade between city-states and indigenous kingdoms, Chiles were among the most valued products that were exchanged. We know, for instance, that in the capital of the Mexica Empire, in what is today Mexico City, farmers who worked in the allotments that rested on top of a large system of interconnected lakes, chiles were planted side by side beans, corn, tomatoes and squashes as part of the ancestral milpa crop system. Now, it is also important to say that because chiles were domesticated over a period of thousands of years, and farmers systematically selected the specific traits they'd want to preserve, such as size, flavor, and even color, it is fair to assume that modern-day chiles look very little like their original ancestors. Proof of that is that wild chiles and a few varieties of modern types of chiles used to grow upwards and raise above the little canopy of leaves of the plant. Now, the reason why this happened is that it would allow them to be easily spotted by birds and other animals who will eat the fruit and disseminate the seeds in the surrounding areas. The most chiles that were domesticated are significantly larger and heavier than their ancient predecessors, causing them to grow downwards, hanging under the little canopy of leaves, which in return allows them to have a slower and longer ripening process and keeps them protected from the hungry view of animals and insects. Now, let's find out why chiles have such a particular effect in our taste buds and bodies. And where is that dark magic that makes them so delicious? Not all chiles are the same, and there is definitely more to just green and red, because each chile has a unique and distinctive flavor, texture and shape. The flavors also range enormously depending on the method of preparation and preservation. So they go from sweet to acidic, sharp or round. And that is why chiles have the power to transform an ordinary dish into an extraordinarily rich creation. Now the flavor of chiles is actually contained in the juice of the skin, which is mixed with a chemical compound called capsaicin, which is what gives chiles their distinctive taste. This chemical creates a chain reaction in the human body and stimulates areas of the tongue and skin that normally only perceive heat and pain. So the nervous system then sends a signal to the brain and tells it that either the tongue or the skin or both are in danger because they are burning and hence the expression that chiles are hot. 
But why on earth would a plant produce such an aggressive chemical compound as capsaicin? I hear you say. Well, the answer lies in the plant's own survival. Studies have revealed that capsaicin is very efficient at repelling certain types of fungi and parasites. And another bonus of this evolutionary feature is that it's also pretty effective at keeping away many foraging animals. Well, except for humans, which apparently are the exception to the rule. So let's see what happens in your body when you bite through a chili or eat some salsa or any dish that contains chilies. The first shock to your system will have an effect on your tongue as Capsaicinoids contained in chiles will target only certain nerve receptors. While your brain is aware that eating chiles is causing a physical pain, it also triggers a heavy release of endorphins, otherwise known as happiness hormones, which have the purpose to flood your body with a rush of adrenaline that acts as a natural painkiller. And that results in a very bizarre chemical reaction in which your brain is telling you that it hurts, but at the same time is telling you that it feels very, very good. And that causes you to carry on eating more chiles. <laughs> Now, there is actually a scientific method to measure the concentration of this chemical compound that is responsible for the strength of each chile variety. And that is called the Scoville scale. And I'm sure many of you have heard about it. Now, what this scale does is that it grades the density and the strength of these chemical components. The creator of this scale was called Wilbur Scoville, who was an American pharmacist. And he was the one who came up with this process to identify the strength by a very simple method, which is actually genius, and that consists in obtaining a concentrate of a chile and then diluted in a solution of water and sugar. And the number of times that you need to consecutively dilute this solution until there is no trace at all of the flavor and the actual chemical component, that indicates the degree of the strength So the higher the number in the scale is the times that he had to dilute that specific chile, that means it's very, very piquant. Now, whether Mr. Wilbur liked his chiles or not, I really cannot tell you. But at least I can assure you that he must have had quite a few strong encounters in his career dealing with chiles. And a lesser known use of chiles, and more specifically the pigments that we can find in certain varieties of chiles once they are completely ripe and reach their beautiful crimson color, depending on the variety, can be used to color lipsticks and blush. And now I want to talk a little bit about the methods of preservation of chiles. The culinary use of chiles precedes its farming. And the reason why is because nomadic tribes would have used them long before they transitioned to a sedentary life. And as I mentioned before, chiles proved particularly useful in helping them preserve the meats of the animals they hunted. So for them, having a good supply of chiles was indeed very important. 
they couldn't escape from the need of preserving them. And one of the oldest methods of preserving chiles is by sun drying. Once the chiles are ripe, they are harvested and they are either laid on the floor or hanged to allow for the sun to dry them. Now this of course is a low cost and low intensity labor process, but it also has some disadvantages because it exposes the chilies to catch moist and rot or they can be easily attacked by insects. Now after the transition to a sedentary life, the once nomadic tribes began developing what is called the agricultural revolution that took place not only in ancient Mexico, but all around the world. And this forced humans to find better and more efficient ways to preserve the crops they worked so hard to obtain. And is here where the first technological innovation took place. After some drying chiles, a second stage of preservation was created by gently smoking them. And this had a tremendous effect in the flavor, as it enhances the natural notes and the profile of each chile. Also kills any mold and bacteria that would make otherwise chiles an easy target for insects. Once the chiles are dehydrated and smoked, they can easily be stored for future use. And to reconstitute them, you only need to rehydrate them by means of soaking them in boiling water, or you can boil them directly, but they can also be charred on a naked flame or on a griddle and even fried. And here's a very interesting fact for you about smoked chiles in Mexican history. You have heard, of course, and hopefully also eaten chipotle chiles. They have a very distinctive flavor, profile, texture and color. Well, it turns out that the word chilpoctli means in ancient Nahuatl, smoked chili. So technically, any chili that was smoked instantly became a chilpoctli. Nowadays, in and outside Mexico, we use the word chipotle to refer to a very specific variety of dried chili. Now, preserving in oil and pickling were culinary techniques that were introduced in the colonial period. Pickling fresh chiles with vegetables really enables to have a whole different range of textures and to be layers of flavors while preparing dishes. With 64 different varieties of chiles, you might think it's complicated enough to learn the names of each and every one of them. But it turns out that each chile has multiple names depending on the region where they are cultivated. And on top of that, chiles have different names throughout their life. They can have one name for when they are fresh and unripe, and they have another name for when they are ripe and dried. So how about we review now a few types of chiles, and I will give you both of their most popular names for when they are fresh and when they are dried. So let's see. Fresh and juicy bola and manzano become cascabel when they are dried. Poblano becomes ancho o mulato. Jalapeño or cuaresmeño becomes chipotle. Mirasol becomes guajillo. Chilaca becomes pasilla. Guero o de agua becomes chilhuacle. And chile de árbol, habanero and serrano keep their names when they are dried. 
As I've mentioned on episodes past of the show, the fact that the Mexica or Aztec Empire dominated most of the territory that is known today as Mexico meant that their language, Nahuatl, was essentially the lingua franca across the empire. But given the fact that there were 68 indigenous tribes and 12 linguistic families with dozens of variations, it is fair to assume that just because the Mexica used the word chili to designate this fruit, that doesn't mean at all that that was the only name for it across the other tribes. So here are a few other examples of different words to designate chiles in different indigenous languages. In Purépecha, chili is caguas. In Tarahumara, cori. Zapoteco, guiña. Maya, ik. Chontal, cal, kashi. In Mayo, cocori. And in Huichol, cucuri. And now I think it's time that we take a closer look to certain aspects of chiles in the pre-Columbian life and religion. Thanks to the codexes that reveal fascinating facts about the ancient way of life in pre-Columbian Mexico, we know about the many different uses of chiles that surprisingly go way beyond culinary pursuits, and chiles were considered such a special and revered fruit that many other qualities were attributed to them. For instance, the ritualistic burning of chiles in certain ceremonies is still present to this day, and when shamans or healers perform spiritual cleanses for people or even for houses, burning chiles is seen as particularly effective in getting rid of the evil eye or dark spells and unwanted spirits. It is known that many indigenous tribes perform ritualistic fasting as part of their religious practices, and during these periods it was strictly forbidden to eat or drink anything that contained chiles. The appreciation of chiles in ancient Mexico was such that it was an unmissable component of religious altars and offers to the gods, and was part of imperial tributes. Just like cocoa, chiles were used as a currency. In the Mexica pantheon, we can find deities for almost any kind of aspect of life, and so the goddess Chicomecoatl, who was a sort of deity related to Providence was specially worshipped to ensure an abundance of crops. In the Florentine Codex, there are several scenes depicting ritualistic offers of chiles, corn, and other edible plants presented to Chicomecoatl. But it turns out that this goddess had several siblings, among them Tlaloc, who was a god of rain, and the little Tlatlaukisihuatl Ichilsintli otherwise known as the revered Lady of the Red Chiles. Surviving codexes mention medicinal uses, like making elaborate pastes to treat dental cavities and gum diseases, and also to prevent gastric ulcers and reflux. Jarring chiles on naked flames produces a pungent and strong smoke that anyone who is familiar with traditional Mexican cooking methods can tell you about the strong choking sensation, painful cough and unstoppable crying no one will seek to inflict upon oneself such barbaric torture. 
However, it was a very common and quite efficient punishment for naughty children, and there is a rather explicit illustration in the Mendoza Codex that shows a parent punishing a naughty child. And you will be able to see this image and a few others on this episode's special blog post on pasachipotle.com. There is also an interesting case and example of the use of chiles as a form of torture, as told in the story of a war between the lord of Azcapotzalco and the lord of Tenochtitlan, in which war prisoners were fed only really piquant food and denied of any water. And other tortures included locking prisoners in a room and filling it with a pungent smoke of burning chiles. You know, while these examples reveal interesting facts about the indigenous ingenuity, then, just like now, chiles shone in all their radiant glory in the kitchens at the hands of skilled cooks who created many concoctions to delight people. One of the most complex and elevated forms of celebrating this ingredient was chilmoli, a dish whose cultural transcendence would only be revealed centuries later, as it evolved from being a type of thick soup to transform into the dozens of molles that spread throughout the nation. And I won't dwell too much on this story at this time, but keep that in mind in future episodes. Going back to Chiles, here is quite an endearing historical note for you. Among the pre-Columbian tribes in Mexico, the ball game was a popular and widespread form of sport, entertainment, and a ritualistic practice. While there were very solemn occasions when this game was practiced, and like with any modern sport, betting was a very popular pastime among the followers of the different teams that existed. So while betting on losing or gaining physical objects was common, eager fanatics of the ball game added a fear factor by daring each other to rob chiles on one's eyes should their team lose. Maybe that was when the common practice of daring each other to eat strong chiles was born, as Mexicans today can tell you that only the brave or the fool they're biting and eating raw chiles for fun. The traces and the legacy of ancient indigenous rites and many aspects of everyday life trickled into the colonial period and are still quite visible in our mixed heritage culture. And religious celebrations are just one of the many aspects where the indigenous imprint can be seen. In the town of Olinala, Guerrero, famous for its lacquered wood crafts, there is a mestizo celebration in which the villagers of Olinala celebrate San Francisco with a mixed ancient ritual of building banners out of flowers and chiles and a special bunting called masuchiles. Every year on October the 4th, or its ancient equivalent that corresponded to the celebrations of Tlaloc, the god of rain, masuchiles were placed by the temple of Tlaloc to ask for his blessing for the next agricultural cycle. Modern-day celebrations, however, have a Catholic undertone, and as it was the case with many religious indigenous deities, San Francisco in this case to cover the place of ancient gods. 
In this episode's notes, again, you will find a link to the blog post where I put all this additional material and I will include some photographs of the Masuchi list from Olinala. And it's time to make a pause and we will return with the show after the break. Continue your journey learning and discovering the amazing history behind the delicious Mexican gastronomy and learn to prepare wonderful cultural feasts at home with my ebooks Mexican market food, Mexican fiestas, Mexican street food and Mexican chocolate. With dozens of stories, recipes and vibrant photography, each book is a window into the grand culinary traditions of Mexico. To know more about my ebooks and start the making of your own family traditions, go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash publications. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash publications and get ready to cook learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. The accidental, because there is no other way to say it, arrival of Christopher Columbus to the Americas had many consequences that impacted the whole world and the ramifications of this event led, of course, to the conquest of the Americas by Spain first and then followed by Portugal, France and a few centuries on the road, England joined too which accelerated the naval technology and for the first time in history created a global network of maritime trade that disseminated crops, animals, products, technology and other less charming things like diseases to and from every continent. This period that lasted between the 15th and the early 18th centuries is known as the Columbian Exchange. Under this system of mercantilism, where colonies were exploited at a minimal cost for the empires, produce from the New World reached unimaginable corners of the planet. Mexican corn, beans, tomatoes, cocoa, vanilla, and of course chiles, among many other products, went forth and blessed cuisines with their magic. Spain was, of course, the first European nation to adopt chiles into their diet, although their palate was much more used to the mild flavor of peppercorns, garlic, and Middle Eastern spices. Therefore, they had a preference for the less piquant varieties and those that had a rather sweet aftertaste. But since the Spanish crown was for centuries also head of the Holy Roman Empire, trade routes that connected Spain with the Silk Route and the Mediterranean trade helped disseminating Mexican chiles and many other crops into the Arab world, and quickly they reached Eastern Europe and crossed the Balkans to find their way into Hungarian stews and Middle Eastern delicious marinades and dishes. But as is often the case in history, fortune is for those who seize the opportunities that others have created, and it was thanks to the strong Portuguese mercantilism and their well-established trade routes with the Far East that many American products, namely those native to the Spanish colonies, reached India and China and many countries in South Asia. 
by the mid-1500s, Portugal had already established and consolidated its control of certain maritime routes between Brazil and other African and Asian Portuguese colonies. And it was allegedly by the hands of Portuguese merchants that Mexican Chiles reached the court of Halal Uddin Muhammad Akbar, the third Mughal emperor that reigned over most of the Indian subcontinent between 1556 and 1605. As a keen explorer and botany enthusiast, he welcomed with curiosity all the new produce from the Americas and promoted farming across his territories. It is then that, during this prosperous period of trade, colonial expansionism and economic growth, that the many regional cuisines of India and Mexico became forever intertwined as the spices from one continent and the produce from the other elevated their traditional dishes to new heights of sophistication and complexity. Therefore, the evolution and history of curries and moles is one that really deserves a deeper exploration and study to show the beautiful synchronicity at which they became the world-celebrated creations they are. And I will leave this subject for now, but I promise I will return to it and pick it up in another episode, as I work my way tiptoeing around what it will hopefully be a really epic special on moles. And now let's move on to explore a bit more of the culinary uses of chiles in Mexico. Chiles can be used when they are fresh or when they are dried, raw, pureed, chopped, charred, fried, boiled and baked. They can be used as a seasoning, as a side or a main dish. And their notes range from sweet, pungent and fresh to bitter, sharp, nutty and even citrusy. Both the seeds and the flesh of chiles are used for different purposes. The seeds are often toasted and ground into a paste to serve as base of moles and other dishes. And now let me explain some of the main types of foods that can be prepared using chiles in different forms. Most of the 64 varieties of chiles that we have will have a distinctive green color but others might begin turning slightly yellow or even red at the very early stages of ripening, and they are turned into fresh ground salsas to accompany dishes, chopped and sprinkled on soups or broths, finely chopped and mixed with cilantro and onion to go on top of tacos, birria, barbacoa, and many other dishes. And of course there's people who simply enjoy alternating spoonfuls of their favorite food while nibbling raw chiles. Fried chiles. Fresh and dried chiles are often fried as part of the preparation of dishes such as salsas and garnishings, but they can be served whole, sprinkled with salt or with an extra touch of lime juice. Boiled and soaked. Boiling fresh chiles allows to reduce the piquantness and smooth the texture of the chile, and they are often boiled to prepare salsas, soups, and dishes like rice, moles, and stews. 
Dry chilies are often softened and rehydrated by dipping them in a bath of freshly boiled water and that will suffice to soften for grinding or mixing them with other ingredients. Charred chilies. Dry and fresh chilies are often charred, either on a naked flame or on a hot griddle. Fresh chilies are often charred, either on a naked flame or on a hot griddle. The skin will begin to blister and will cover the whole chili in bubbles. You will put the chili in a plastic bag and then wrap it with a kitchen towel. This will allow the chili to sort of steam and will make it very easy to peel. This method is particularly common to prepare stuffed poblano chiles or to make rajas or slices of chile poblano. Many dishes like adobos and moles or salsas call for dry chiles to be charred. Any process that involves subjecting chiles, fresh or dried, to be in direct or indirect contact with heat will release the chilies' natural oils, the flavors will be enhanced, and the textures will become more palatable and soft. In certain regions, like the Mixteca Poblana and Oaxaqueña, sal de gusano is a popular condiment to sprinkle on orange wedges to accompany shots of mezcal. Sal de gusano literally translates as warm salt, and it indeed contains desiccated, toasted and ground larvae of moths that nest in the leaves of agaves. As you've heard today, to talk about Mexican chiles means taking a deep plunge into the natural history of Mesoamerica the evolution of agriculture, gastronomy, and preparation methods. We've just really only scratched the surface of it, but I think it's a very enticing way to help contextualize the importance of one of Mexico's most valued crops. According to the National Institute of Ecology, the annual consumption of chiles per capita in Mexico is of 8 kilograms of fresh chiles and 1.5 kilos of dried chiles. A very ambitious project launched in 2010 called Documenting the Gastronomic Biodiversity of Mexico through Diana Kennedy's Culinary Archives had four goals, first creating a digital database with never published field notes, photography and specimens of Diana Kennedy's research, and the second goal was to trace and document all the ingredients mentioned in the traditional recipes compiled in Diana's books Oaxaca al Gusto, Essential Cuisines of Mexico, The Art of Mexican Cooking, and My Mexico, A Culinary Odyssey. What this amazing project proved was something Diana Kennedy knows too well, that there has been a systematic loss and substitution of endemic varieties of chiles and other crops for cheap imports of much inferior quality and none of the textures and flavor profiles of authentic Mexican chiles. According to a recent study by the World Wildlife Fund, found that of the 7,000 edible plants that exist in Mexico, our modern diet is really based around only 15 plants, which reveals deeper and darker truths. One of them is that there has been a systematic loss of food knowledge, 
and the introduction of foreign crops has led to an interruption of the ancestral production of fruits, vegetables, and other edible plants. We are also contributing with this to the destruction of the livelihood of thousands of Mexican farmers whose crops can't be sold because multinational corporations prefer buying low-cost produce from other countries. And that is how in Mexico we ended up consuming chiles that are farmed in Africa and Asia. And only four in ten chiles that we eat in Mexico are farmed here. And, sadly, that is also the case for many other crops that are at the core of our gastronomic identity. It is my view that we really do very little service to traditional foods by fetishizing the dishes themselves. Because by doing that, we are completely ignoring the fact that the only reason that these dishes exist is all because of the skills, knowledge and work of hundreds of generations of traditional cooks. But all of that, again, is only possible thanks to the farmers who plant and care for the crops, choose the seeds and reap the produce that will nurture our bodies. A cuisine is but the sum of a collective effort in which every step, every hand and every tool and ingredient is equally important. So go on and choose to cook with all the ingredients that celebrate your cultural identity and share the knowledge and recipes with all those around you. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. To find the links that I've mentioned today on this episode, check the notes that I've written down below. You can click and look for them in your podcast app. And on the special blog post that accompanies this episode on patachipotle.com, you will find a hand-picked selection of books that will serve as a good reading companion if you want to know more about chiles. If you love this show, and I'm sure you do, I think you will also enjoy my new podcast, Hungry Books, in which I review amazing books on the subject of food. And you can find it on your favorite podcast app. If you didn't know, I have a newsletter, which is completely free, and I always send it right before I launch every episode, so there is no spamming at all. And I always include news about upcoming episodes, projects, and discounts for my subscribers. Click the link that I've left for you on this episode's notes. And remember, you can reach out to me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email to hello at pasdechipotle.com. Well, that's it for me. I want to wish you again a happy new decade. Until the next time. <laughs>